singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature Singularity weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in several ways. You can simply give thumbs up to this video on YouTube. You can leave a comment on the blog. You can write a review of the show on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today the man with the answers will be Professor Chris Hables Gray. Professor Gray lectures at the University of California at Santa Cruz and California State University at Monterey Bay in the Cultural Studies of Science and Technology. His particular interest is how information technologies shape contemporary war and peacemaking and the politics of cyborgization. He is the editor of the Cyborg Handbook and the author of Postmodern War, Cyborg Citizen and Peace and War and Computers. Currently, he is researching social media and social change and finishing a book on information theory entitled Infoisms, Aphorisms about Information. And he will be also one of the keynote speakers of the upcoming Valence ISTAS 2013 conference in Toronto that I plan to attend this June 27th to 29th. So after such a long introduction, Chris, I'm very happy to have you on the show. That's my pleasure. So I have to begin our conversation today with an admission, uh, which would go in the following way. First of all, I've been following your work for a few years, uh, and I think I've read two, maybe three of your books. Uh, the one that I was able to dig out of my library <laughs> is uh, Cyborg Citizen, and there was a time when I used to confuse it a lot with uh, James Hughes' book, which is called Citizen Cyborg. <laughs> uh, yes, uh... So we have to make sure we differentiate the two books, which are both fantastic works, and I recommend everybody read them. But one is called this one is called Citizen Cyborg, <laughs> the other is called Cyborg Citizen. Yeah, James uh, is a great guy, and uh, he did not choose the title of his book, which came out a little after me. It was the publisher. The publisher, so he, yeah. He, he was that, not happy about the confusion. Yeah, isn't that quite often the case? Oh yes, that's one of the things they care most about. <laughs> the cover and the title, much more than the content on it. So were you able to choose your own title in this case? Yes, in this case I was. But okay. in my last book, Peace, War, and Computers, I was not able to choose my title. So, mm -hmm. so it goes. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, you know, Chris, we have, uh, we have had a history of overlapping interests because the way I got into cyborg, uh, being interested in the technological singularity in general and issues such as cyborg, transhumanism, and so on, was through my interest in studies of war. Mm. Uh, and actually, my undergraduate degree was uh, a mixture of political science, philosophy, and economics, and my master's was in international relations, focusing on armed conflict. So, uh, so I, that's why I had to, to read uh, a few of your, of your books, which I enjoyed and appreciated very much. But let me ask you this. How is it that you got to be interested in this subject yourself? Well, when I went to graduate school, I was going to write about how the U.S. military thought about artificial intelligence. But then as I studied uh, their various computer programs, I realized that there was a bigger issue, just how they utilized information. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, even though I was trying to resist it, 
I began to recognize that my advisor's claim, uh, my advisor's Donna Haraway, the great feminist philosopher of science, that her claim that the cyborg was a central figure, a central issue of contemporary culture was very true. Because in particular, the U.S. military thinks of all of their um, operations as deploying weapons systems of humans and machines, man-machine system, they call it. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm contrary by nature and I didn't want to sign on to the idea of the cyborg, nor the concept of the postmodern, I ended up embracing both of them because it was the best way to explain what was going on. Mm -hmm. Are you still resisting those or you've already... No, no, I've totally succumbed. Uh, <laughs> and as a typical grad student for a while, everything I saw was a cyborg. I've since managed to control that perception some, but it is fascinating how ubiquitous intimate human machine and animal machine systems are. Mm -hmm. So let's start perhaps by... Uh specifying the definition or the meaning of the term that we are discussing here. What, in your view, is a cyborg? Well, a cyborg is a term coined by um, Manfred Klein, who I happen to be uh, fortunate enough to know. I've interviewed him and so on. And when him and Nathan Klein, his boss, the psychiatrist, were asked to submit a paper to a NASA conference in 1960 on modifying humans for space, like successful academics, they realized that they made up a term and got it to catch on, that would really help. So Manfred came up with the term cybernetic organism, which I want to point out doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you really understand the idea of cybernetics. Because when Nor and, and Manfred does, but it just ma made a good term. Um, of course, cybernetics was uh, coined by um, Norbert Wiener, and it referred to the flows of information, especially, but of energy and machine and energy and matter in all artificial and evolved systems that are non-trivial. So when you understand that, then of course an organism, an organism is automatically cybernetic. So to say cybernetic organism is somewhat redundant. redundant yeah. But it does make the point, that if you look closely at cybernetics, that since the basic laws of how information flows in systems are the same, whether it's a machinic system or an organic system, then the fact that they can be intimately integrated should not be a surprise. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this then, why does it seem, am I correct in observing that both the U.S. military and NASA at the same time have kind of went out of the way, if you will, to avoid uh, using the term cyborg, but have instead used all kinds of other concoctions such as man-machine that you've pointed out uh, uh, in, the, in the case of the military and so on? Well, that's very um, perceptive of you. I actually was a fellow at NASA as a postdoc after I wrote my dissertation. And when I started researching for the, the book you uh, showed, uh, Cyborg Citizen, and they only used the term briefly after it was first coined. They did a report called the Cyborg Study, which took me months to find because it was hidden away in the archives. And I really understand why NASA did not like to sign on to the term cyborg. Martin Caden had used it for his book, and it became very popular in science fiction, which had been writing about these kind of systems even before the term was invented. And NASA's been very allergic to having the astronauts seen as anything less than all American men and women. So they shied away from the term to keep, uh, to keep the taint of science fiction and of monstrosity of monsters away from the astronauts. And in the same way, the military also probably has that same sort of concern, uh, that they don't want their soldiers labeled cyborg. There's certainly been enough of these 
science fiction books and movies made, Universal Soldier, Robocop, to present the soldier augmented, modified through intimate interfaces with technology as sort of a monster. So I think it was sort of a public relations decision. Just as often now, they will refer to drones as robots, mm-hmm. trying to sort of lead responsibility of the humans who are controlling the drones, which in no sense are robots, which um, really means there's a certain sense of autonomy in the system. But to say a robot killed the people at a wedding party in Pakistan somehow makes it less of a moral moral problem, I think, the military believes. But they haven't been getting away with that as much, although bad journalists continually call drone systems, remotely piloted systems, vehicles, land systems, as robots, which in fact they aren't. Mm-hmm. And where would we, how would we draw the distinction in your view between a drone and a robot properly? Well, a robot has autonomy. The term was coined by the Capex brothers, Czech brothers who wrote RUR, Rossum's Universal Robots, the first play about robots becoming sentient. And in fact, they become sentient and they overthrow the humans and then start making the same mistakes as humans. But basically, they are autonomous. Why, of course, the drone systems um, being used by the military as well as uh, little remotely piloted um, ground systems that are used to defuse bombs and so on. These are really cyborg systems, um, and in no sense is there any autonomy in the weapon or in the surveillance platform. Mm-hmm. Now, the Aegis anti-aircraft system, which is a number of years old, but 20 years old now, which is on many cruisers and some frigates in the U.S. Navy, it has the capability to be autonomous. Mm-hmm. Even one of its subcomponents, the Phalanx machine guns, which fire 3,000 depleted uranium rounds a minute, can be put on automatic, choose their own targets and go off. But this hasn't happened. I do not think the military has put them on automatic in a long time because they had a tendency to fail or to just launch Tomahawk missiles at targets that were never identified to this day. And military commanders, especially naval commanders, are responsible for what their ships do. So those machines aren't allowed to be autonomous either. But they have the capability, unlike mm-hmm. drones. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, going back to your previous point about naming, though, do you think that there is a sort of a struggle over the definition of the terms, over the language used, which in some ways perhaps is you, is similar to the struggle of, the gambling industry to sell itself as the gaming industry? Mm-hmm. Well, that's often uh, smart people are very careful about the language they use. And also people have tried to come up with other terms to explain what I call cyborg society, like the vital machine, a historian, uh, Chanel, talked about this as a new stage in human development, or the fourth discontinuity. Uh, Gregory Stock has Metaman, a bit of a patriarchal way to frame it, in my opinion. Uh, a lot of people refer to the hybrid. But hybrid, for me, is a wider concept. Cyborgs are certainly hybrids. But there's other hybrid systems that don't meet the full definition of cyborgs. And we've also noted there's a tendency for people to only call cyborgs human-machine systems, when, in fact, a cockroach with electrodes or um, biological memory in a computer, these are also cyborgs. Mm-hmm. So I think actually in the case of cyborg, except for NASA and the military not wanting to use the term, that basically people just are not being careful when they talk about these things. I'm not entirely attached to the cyborg as the best term. I do think it's the best term, but I don't mind if other people use other terms. Mm-hmm. But I just think people should be careful um, 
It's a terminology they use because it's important. But still, uh, <coughs> can we go a little deeper? Why is it they're trying so hard to avoid it? What's the tainting, as you put it, of science fiction? I mean, most of the NASA uh, scientists from the Apollo program were very overtly influenced by science fiction, by uh, people like Ray Bradbury, for example, and his novels about Mars and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl Sagan was a huge fan. Right. So, I mean, why why science fiction would be tainting to, to NASA? Well, it all depends on the type of science fiction. You're right, science fiction is a key part of the ethos of NASA, and they embraced wholeheartedly uh, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is, with uh, Lieutenant Uhuru, I forget her name, of the actual actress, she's been in charge of recruitment um, for NASA for a long time. She's played a very big role. But, of course, Star Trek is not very dark, and it's extremely humanistic. And in the first Star Trek um, program, you would notice there was only one cyborg, actually, which was uh, Kirk's predecessor. Now, in uh, Next Generation, we suddenly saw a proliferation of cyborgs. By then, NASA had committed to Star Trek universe sort of as, a, as an image they didn't mind. Um, I don't know if they would have, if they would have been thinking of a world with the Borg and with Geordi, you know, with his visor, and Worf with his artificial spine, and Data with his pale skin. Uh, very important for NASA to sell the programs to the U.S. public. We know when they first started putting astronauts into space, they originally just planned to have it man in a can, that's what they call it in NASA. They, they were astronauts were going to play the same role as the chimps that had been sent earlier. And the pilots, these were military pilots, they actually had to object to get a window put in to the Mercury spacecraft. And eventually, of course, it was shown that human machine systems, just as in combat, are much more effective. So NASA eventually allowed the astronauts to do more and more. But then, of course, they also kept a close rein on these very wild group of... Uh, the first astronauts included many test pilots. You know, they were not um, fire boys. And NASA tried very hard to control that image. Uh, so both the military and NASA are just deeply concerned about that image. So they don't mind being um, credited with having a science fiction vision as long as it's the right science fiction vision. The benign imperialism of the Federation and Star Trek is perfect for them. Right? Mm-hmm. But some of the darker views that have um, been written um, by a lot of different people, even Heinlein Starship Troopers is a bit much for the U.S. military with its advocacy of citizenship only for soldiers and so on. And um, a lot of visions of Theodore Sturgeon and other people, they just don't want to pollute their image. So is that what you're referring to when you say that the process of cyborgization is ultimately a political process? Uh, Yeah, go ahead. Well, that would be the naming. But we see in the actual way that cyborgization is being um, developed uh, in both with humans and with other creatures, we see that it's profoundly political. Where's the money come from? Who's paying for it? What do people expect out of this? It's true, you still find a few scientists and engineers who are disinterested, but the vast majority of scientists and engineers cannot even pursue exactly what they want. They have to find funding. They have to find an interest. So we see many different social forces come forward to push for cyberization, whether it's individuals like you and I who are interested in being healthy and living longer, or um, other people who are probably... Uh, maybe you, but certainly my sons, who like to think of cyberization as an augmenting to make them 
more special. This would be the transhumanist uh, sort of vision. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and then you see in business and in the military, the people, the managers want the increased efficacy that human machine systems can offer in very difficult environments like combat. Mm-hmm. So there's a reason power chooses to develop these technologies. They do not develop in a vacuum and they, they aren't inevitable. Things can be developed in any number of different ways, but people are pursuing profit or power. And so we see energy goes into creating a new cyborg interfaces. Mm-hmm. But overall, cyborgization is overdetermined. I've come to realize more and more that it's sort of an inevitable outcome of the propensity humans have evolved to be so successful. We modify the physical world around us. We modify ourselves. We have an extremely developed sense of prosopia, you know, the ability to take an object and just touch the tip of our head. Human babies have this ability from as soon as they can hold an object and move. Chimpanzees have the capability, but it has to be carefully fostered, and it takes months for older chimps to reach the same level a human baby reaches immediately. This is because we evolved to be extremely successful tool users and even tool makers. As time goes on, that becomes machines, and then it becomes integrating machines and tools into ourselves and integrating ourselves into larger uh, machining systems. So cyborgization is probably something that became relatively inevitable once humans developed our current ability to manipulate the environment. Mm-hmm. But how that cyborgization is, is being developed and what directions it goes, that is definitely a political process. And that's up for grabs in your view. Yes, it's still very much up for grabs. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would come back to two of the themes that you mentioned here. I really like the term that you use, overdetermined. It's very interesting for me, and I'll come back to it. But before that, let, let's talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say cyborg society. Well, even if you personally are not a cyborg, which is unlikely, since most people watching this have been vaccinated, and that alone is enough to make you a cyborg. And some people have even more sophisticated uh, integrations with machining systems. You live in a society that is a cyborg society. Uh, my sons weren't vaccinated until they were teenagers, because uh, while I believe in the efficacy of vaccines, I also think they have a risk, and I was counting on herd immunity to protect them. Then when they started traveling, they needed vaccines. But even before they'd been vaccinated, They uh, understood computers, they did a lot of stuff online, they drove cars without thinking. So you are part of cyborg society whether you individually are cyborg or not. Humans have created this incredibly complex culture, which is natural, just not separate from nature, any more than a beehive is separate from nature. But yet it's quite unique, as far as we can see among other um, living organisms, and extremely complicated, and has a lot of uh, self-powered systems and and tools that we can pick up or deploy in various ways. So we are intimately integrated into a vast, ever more complex system of machines and tools, which is what cyborg society is. Mm-hmm. And just as one uh, specific example of what you're talking about in terms of the politics of or the, the decision-making process of who decides how, when, and if to embrace uh, that process of making people cyborgs, for example, I never had a choice when I was young, whether to be vaccinated or not. Basically, I was born in Bulgaria, and the whole population, all babies, were vaccinated for certain diseases. Mm -hmm. When I became 18, I got uh, recruited to the army, and before you get there, (coughs) they do all kinds of tests, and they give you even more vaccines, right? Mm -hmm. And none of that I had real power over, right? That was already 
predetermined, chosen for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Made for me. So that's mm-hmm. what you're referring to about uh, that it's a political process and it's a question of who decides uh, when, if, and how to implement that process, right? That's Very much so. Yeah. And not just how the individual comes into the world and becomes uh, involved in the whole technological infrastructure, but also at the cutting edge, which I think you and I are both interested in, the cutting edge of what's being produced, what's being invented, what's being developed. There you can really see how uh, questions of power and desire um, play a major role in terms of what's being perfected and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes something like social media through Facebook and um, Twitter, that kind of so In a sense, all computers are part of social media. But we see that there's a new sort of layer of social media that in the last decade has exploded. That was driven by commercial interests, not the military. But on the other hand, we see with drones, which I consider social media, mm-hmm. because human sociology sociality is physical too, and drones are an extension of physicality, Drones have been perfected by the military because, sad to say, killing and threatening and uh, scaring other people is also part of human sociality, and that's what drones are for. So drones are being developed under the sign of war, while social media was developed under the sign of courtship as much as anything, or friendship, right? So different forces, human culture is so complex, different forces play a role in the development of different cyborgian um, technosciences. Mm-hmm. But isn't it the case with drones, just like it was the case with Internet, that while the, the military gave birth to the technology, eventually it went, it went rogue on them, if I could use that term, because right now we have an incredibly popular... I mean, the Internet's already out of the control of the military, apparently, but mm-hmm. we have a growing DIY... Uh, uh, drone movement of people who are developing open, open source quadcopters, airplanes, all kinds of models, uh, exploding and which are at a fraction of the, of, of the cost of the military ones and which have amazing capabilities, by the way, and growing too. Well, that's a very good point and I expect to see that. And of the paper I'm working on now with, uh, Angel Gordo Lopez, from Spain, uh, we predict that there will be many more than 30,000 drones that the FAA predicts soon to be in the U.S. <laughs> but the interweb, as I like to call it, is a distributed network. And as such, it's sort of less amenable to the control of hierarchical organizations like the military. But on the other hand, drone systems uh, are more standalone, and there I would suspect we won't see that they there will be mainly a civilian drone world. We will see many, many civilian and private applications of drones delivering pizza, spying on girlfriends, monitoring the watering of farms. But military drones will increase, I would predict, at even a greater rate. And eventually there'll be a desire to put a great deal of autonomy into the systems mm-hmm. but because the of system, the dream, the, the dream that they can win wars. Yeah, yeah the system is already pretty, pretty autonomous. I mean... Most of the latest generation of drones, uh, they take off and land on their own. They loiter in the air on their own. Uh, the decision, and yes, at any moment during flight, that those decisions can be overwritten by a, a remote pilot. But the main decisions that people, operators, are involved in right now is whether to kill or not to kill, basically. To bomb right, or not to is, bomb. Which is the most important decision, of course. And, yes. Uh, it's something that will be a long time, uh, I hope, 
and of course in this world, how long is a long time, before the man is taken out of the loop, as they say, although many drone operators are women, but that's military language. Um, then there will be mistakes will be made, as they were with the Aegis system. The more you give autonomy to the weapons, weapons are not smart enough, and I don't see in the near future they will be ever smart enough in the next 20 or 30 years to actually take part in combat, which is extraordinarily confusing area. So you will, they will want to keep humans involved uh, for some time. But, but do, you not think that, do you not think that this process is also what, as you put it, overdetermined already? Well, it's overdetermined under the current political structure, which one of my projects is to help change that. I'm quite committed to changing our neo-capitalist, um, profit-based, authoritarian kind of system and having more decentralized truer democracy with a higher set of values. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. It's overdetermined. Cyborgization is overdetermined because of the very way humans have evolved. The current militarization of a lot of these important techno-sciences is overdetermined because of the political system we live in. And that can be changed. We can change the political system. I don't know if we can really change our nature, which is to manipulate the physical environment and ourselves. It's what's made us the overwhelming perhaps too great a success biologically that we are. And it's just what humans do. Humans make things and change things and model things and manipulate things. And but including ourselves. And, especially and, ourselves. Yeah, especially and, and, ourselves. I mean, what, is, what does this human nature mean anyway? Well, it means uh, right now we're homo sapien sapien. Uh, we are people, uh, or as Marx like to say, homo faber, the tool maker. And that's what we do ecologically. Um, and that's why we have managed to infiltrate and dominate so many different ecological niches, which is extraordinary for any creature. Only some insects have the ubiquity we have. And for megafauna, you know, larger creatures were unique. And there's billions of us. Um, it's because of this ability to step back and model the world and then manipulate that world. It's, can be ascribed to the disease of consciousness, as some philosophers have called it. Because, of course, it leads to problems, the fear of death, which leads to inventing religions and all sorts of neuroses. But consciousness, as difficult as it is to, to be conscious, uh, makes us extremely effective for manipulating the physical world. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, about a week ago, I interviewed a 97-year-old uh, inventor and... and uh, 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 industrial designer and uh, the, the main person behind the Venus project, namely Jacques Fresco. Mm -hmm. uh, and according to him, and we had a bit of a debate on that, there's no such thing as new human nature. He says human nature is just an excuse for doing nothing about changing our world. Uh, basically, he says that human nature is 100% the environment that we live in. You change the environment, you change that human nature. And I, I granted to him that I am willing to give him that most of it, large chunk of it is the environment, but I wasn't willing to give him 100%. No, I'm glad, because Locke was wrong. It's not a tabla rasa. Humans are born, for example, with a propensity towards language, the ability to have language. And, in fact, humans who aren't raised with other humans to have language, they aren't really human. So that is a, really a very important way we are shaped. And our prosopia, as I was mentioning before, and actually, I would say there's a lot that is um, 
part of our nature. We might be able to recognize it and overcome it, but all sorts of logical errors we make when we analyze the world. We did not evolve to be rational. We evolved to be effective at manipulating the world and to be effective as social animals. So peer pressure affects our perceptions of things. There's something called anchoring where when we're exposed to big numbers, then we end up estimating things in bigger numbers. We have all sorts of flaws in our reasoning and in our perceptions, which if we aren't aware of those, if we don't understand how um, our flawed rationality is a matter of our evolved nature, then I think that's a mistake. I think he's making a mistake to ignore that. One of my new projects is to study evolutionary psychology, Mm -hmm. to understand why people often believe things that go against their own personal interests, for example, and why people believe incredible nonsense, like uh, the third of Republicans in America who believe Obama was not born in America. I'm not a big fan of Obama. I'm an anarchist. I'm way to the left of him. But really, I try not to be irrational. I have my irrationalities. I try to restrict them to my personal life, to my love life, and recognize I'm going to be irrational in that realm. But in politics and understanding how the world works, I think we have to understand that our nature is to make many mistakes and to assume we know more than we do and to be relatively um, overconfident with our individual evaluations and not to work as much collectively to come up with group understandings as we should, because when you look closely at it, when you study how people make decisions, we make better decisions when we do it collectively. Well, interestingly enough, that's exactly what he says in terms of conclusion. He says that cooperation, not competition, is the future in his view. Yes, well, uh, the great anarchist Prince Kropotkin was the first evolutionary scientist to argue that cooperation was at least at least as important as competition. So, yes, I like his work. I admire him. But I think he's being a bit over-optimistic to think that human nature is totally plastic. Mm-hmm. We have to deal within um, what we've been given in a world of language. Uh, of course, we're going to die. We have to, under, as a philosopher, I'm always, every day I try to think about my death, to embrace it, to understand I'm going to die, to not let it become irrational, to not hide from the implications of that. Mm-hmm. This is what made Socrates so great. Yeah, and and he's my hero, and I love him. But uh, I I don't I have come to view death not so straightforward. I mean, mind you, I had a strong period of time when I was doing martial arts uh, most uh, uh, intensely. I did Aikido for about three or four years, and I was reading all the the ancient uh, samurai texts, like the Hagakure, the Book of the Falling Leaves, the the Shogun Scrolls. Mm-hmm. The Book of Five Rings, and it's all about, if you're a samurai or generally Japanese martial arts, it's all about preparing for death. Which is, by the way, Socrates in one point says, philosophy is all about preparing to die, basically. Yes, yes. Um, but on the other hand, most recently I've come to conclude that that may not be the most scientific attitude towards death, because just like everything else in the universe, this may be subject to change. So I don't think it's such a straightforward assumption for me anymore, and I'd like you to elaborate on why do you think, of course, I'm going to die. Well, I do have a disagreement, I think, with many extropians, transhumanists on this issue, and I'm afraid they've fallen prey to the fear of death so that they become irrational and expecting some kind of deus ex machina, you know, some intervention from... Uh, some dynamic that is pretty much unexplained, like what's really going to cause the singularity, is going to save them from death. Mm-hmm. 
Now, maybe in the far future, humans will be able to manipulate the physical world enough so that we won't die, you know, put your personality in different machines or, or roaming bat type bodies. It's not impossible, but it's centuries away. And it has its own dangers. If you understand evolution, you know that without death, there would be no evolution. If somehow just today you could snap your fingers and abolish death, then there would be no more evolution. There would be invention. No more evolution the way we understand it right now, but there will be a different kind of evolution, perhaps. Well, there would be change, but there would be no more natural selection if we abolish death for everything. Of course, um, most people only worry about death for humans and maybe their closest pet friends. Hmm. They don't really worry about the life cycle of the fruit fly or all the other aspects of nature, of which we are only part. But nature needs death. And I think humans need death. I like the Lord of the Rings where Aragorn just embraces his own death at a certain point of time. I would love to live for hundreds of years. Uh, but forever? Forever is a long time. It seems extremely unlikely that humans will ever, or even certain post-humans that we can imagine, would ever live forever. Yeah, let's not, let's not, I'm not prepared to embrace the word forever myself. But, you know, a hundred years I think is is uh, nothing, or it should be nothing, with proper application of science and technology. I mean, we're already doing five or six times uh, the life expectancy of fruit flies, for example. They're called Methuselah flies, right? Mm -hmm. We've had certain types of success even with uh, lab mice or, or lab rats, uh, mm -hmm. where, according to different studies, we've had almost two, or two in some cases, over 200% of uh, life increase longevity increase, uh, why shouldn't we be able to take that to the human scale? And yes, it takes time, money, and effort, uh, but I don't think we're talking 100 years. I think we're talking, you know, a decade probably, maybe two decades, even if it's three decades. Oh, for real longevity? Well, that's... Yeah, so, so that... I would put it a little further off. 120. But that's not immortality. There's a giant difference between sure, longevity yeah. and immortality. And one science fiction story, I can't quite remember its name... It postulated that in a future where it was common for humans to live a thousand years, two thousand years, that the vast majority of people would hide in their homes, afraid to go outside. It's one thing to go out and get milk and get run over by accident and you lose, you know, 30 years of life. But what happens if you go outside and get um, run over by accident and you lose a thousand years of life? So, in fact, in the science fiction story, it became a giant curse, this longevity. Nobody was willing to risk anything. And see, as uh, unintended consequences could be quite horrible. That that model of a future humanity that lived in fear was terrifying to me because this is one of the great things about people, why many people's lives are dominated by fear. Many people are not dominated by fear. They take chances to make the world better or just to climb some big mountain. Um, jump out of a plane. Pardon? To jump out of a plane or... Jump out of a plane. I'm more interested in the things that are more uh, contribute to... Uh, the beauty of human existence, but even the stupid things people do is part of their charm. And yet, if we had a thousand-year lifespan and started realizing that any accident, any remote twist of fate could end that, we could end up living incredibly constipated, eliminated lives, and that would be horrific. But isn't that the case even today? And, and wouldn't that be the same? I mean, even today, you have people who are more prone to take risks and, and others who are very risk-averse. If you ask uh, the average teenager today, from their point of view, they're practically going to live forever, <coughs> and they're they're behaving like they would, right? 
Uh, that's, guess that's oh, how that's... I behaved when I was 16 or 17 or 18. Uh, Too many hormones. <laughs> it's, it's a feeling people have. But even when I had that feeling, I knew I could die. And in fact, I came very close to dying. I hitchhiked 100,000 miles. I was in many violent protests. You know, I took chances. I knew, and I read my Socrates and many other wonderful philosophers. I knew death was a reality. And it had, but I knew also you couldn't just live in, in fear of it. Uh, people who are totally afraid of death is in the science fiction story. Um, they get medical treatment because they can't leave their home. Someone has to bring them their food. It's agoraphobia. But if you lived a thousand years, it would almost be rational to stay home, to be afraid of any uh, car crash or, or stray mugger or asteroid hit or something. Because it's a matter of balancing out the risks with what you're going to lose. If you live a thousand years, a premature death can cost you a lot more than if your life expectancy is 70, 75, like mine is. Yeah, but, but then on the other hand, what do you have to gain of staying at home? If you, if you live a thousand years, stay sitting on your couch, that's worse than death to me, for example. And I believe. Well, for me as well. For I, me as well. I, so there may be in sufficiently enough large chunk of the population that would come out and do anything that they want to do. I uh, hope so. But what if you, we have, with improvements we see in uh, virtual reality technology, people could stay at home and feel like they're having an exciting life. They could fight in great wars. They can explore foreign planets. Mm -hmm. uh, they could send drones off to Venus and Mars and Alpha Centauri. So you could have a very rich sort of disembodied life staying at home when your uh, robots and remote-controlled systems could build these systems and carry your consciousness off. Yeah, and I'm sure we will, and I'm sure the future will be weirder than than we can imagine. But I think there would be a more di a larger diversity than, than we could ever expect of people who are stuck on their couches watching uh, or living in virtual reality, as well as others who would go out and live in the in the physical world mm -hmm. in, in new ways. Uh, precisely because of cyborgization and precisely because of those new capabilities that they would be able to attain by, you know, upgrading their biology. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you're, you're quite right. The world will be weirder than we can imagine. And that's why science fiction is so important, because mm -hmm. we can start seeing um, how incredibly complicated and uh, different the possibilities are. That's why I still love to read science fiction. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, too. So... Uh, speaking of science fiction, let me ask you then, who are your favorite uh, authors? Well, my favorite author is Ursula Le Guin. Uh, as an anarchist, you know, her novel, The Dispossessed. Uh, but I read uh, Ian Banks. I read all the cyberpunk people. William Gibson often is very thoughtful. Um, Octavia Butler influenced me a lot, too, with her visions of... Uh, you know, when you, people think about, oh, why would aliens come to Earth? And in a lot of weaker science fiction, they come for the water, or they come for this. But she had aliens coming to Earth for what had evolved. That's what's truly unique about Earth. And we can imagine other planets. It's what's evolved. And then these aliens would take, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but Donna Haraway has read it a lot. Uh, Pat Cadigan. Um, there's just a lot of, a lot of very good stuff. It's hard to keep. Keep up with it. Yeah, Donna Haraway's uh, Cyborg Manifesto is a classic, I think. So it's a must read for everyone interested in issues. Uh, even though some of her critics say that, you know, it's a, taking a very strong feminist perspective. Yes, well, some of her admirers say that's its virtue. I'm an anarchist feminist. <laughs> Our society is way too patriarchal. And we need to bring balance. It's not a good thing that many of the most beautiful and important aspects 
of society, uh, emotions, nature, caring, they're all labeled female, and for many people it makes them less important than, than rationality, than hard-headedness, than uh, the ability to be cruel. But in actuality, we need all these virtues, whether they're labeled masculine or feminine. And that's why one of the main reasons I'm a feminist, and also, of course, the great injustices that are done under patriarchy, so instrumentalist way of seeing the world and so on. Yeah, we can blame our friend Plato, to whom we have to thank for Socrates very much, but we can't blame him about the so-called female and male natures and and all those things that the ideal feminine and, and masculine and Yes, I, I'm not fond of Plato at all, actually. And uh, it's true, he wrote down a lot of what Socrates said, but he also put many stupid things in Socrates' mouth, which I do not think Socrates would ever have said, like the Socrates that we see from Xenophon and uh, yeah. and even in Aristophanes' plays. There's uh, Socrates, and then there's Plato, and there's a little space. It's hard to say which is which, but a lot of what... I mean, Socrates was a shoemaker. Plato established an academy. Socrates died for democracy. Plato advocated killing the poets and having a dictatorship of philosopher kings. You know, they're quite, quite different. Yeah, they are, they are very different. But he was, by the way, a stonemason, uh, not a shoemaker. A oh, stone. yes, of course, a stonemason. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, let's, let's go on and talk a little bit about the response uh, um, to those problems uh, or to the issues of, or the politics of cyborgization, as you put it. Are your Cyborg Bill of Rights a response to the politics of cyborgization in a way? Well, it's actually a way to get people to notice that technologies like constitutions and declarations of independence laws are technology. But they have to keep up with the physical world as it's being modified by new inventions. Um, many people have been pointing out now that drones are becoming more ubiquitous that the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, decided that if a police officer in the United States, climbs a fence and looks in your yard, that's a crime. But if a plane flies over your yard and takes a picture of your yard, that's not a crime. And that means that technologically, your right to privacy has been trumped by these new uh, inventions. And this is only going to get worse. So if we're going to keep our freedom, as I argue in Cyborg Citizen, and extend it, we have to have a much stronger idea of citizenship. And we must have freedom extended to freedom from technological spying and technological interventions, which even scarier than drones looking into your bedroom window, distressing as that might be, is the government looking into your mind with new technologies for mind reading, mind control, which are coming very fast. It's mm-hmm. fact that that research seems to be going better than longevity research. The ability, uh, sadly to say, because I do not see many good things in this, of course, a lot of the research is being done either actually or ostensibly to help with brain diseases, um, you know, uh, Alzheimer's, senile dementia, and other genetic and other post-traumatic stress problems people have. But in actuality, when you look closely at some of the research, you see it's very much aimed at the ability both to read minds with perfect accuracy, and they're getting closer to that, and the next step would be to control minds with perfect accuracy. And so that we would, in fact, embrace our oppression by a centralized government. Yeah, I actually remember publishing a couple of articles on what's being called recently neuromarketing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is basically marketers embracing those technologies in order to sell you stuff. Yes, there's a grad student I met when I was in Toronto in the winter who's doing her research on that. And it's quite disturbing. 
because we're moving along at a very fast pace. Mm-hmm. Right now, when they make commercials, when they think up new products, they hook people up to real-time three-dimensional brain tomography, and they analyze different parts of what they're doing, how they're thinking, trying to hit those memory centers that trigger nostalgia. The reason people like Coke more than Pepsi, although they prefer the taste of Pepsi, they have more fond memories of Coke. This is one of the earliest uh, insights of neuromarketing, and they're going to take it further and further. Of course, it's being used by political campaigns as well. Mm-hmm. The Obama campaign mined social media for insights into what would be the way to mobilize key demographics to vote for Obama in the last election. And this is only going to become more subtle, more sophisticated, more insidious. Mm-hmm. So are you concerned about the future or are you an optimist then? I'm optimistic by nature. Uh, Antonio Gramsci, the um, great Italian philosopher, said that you must be um, optimistic by nature but pessimistic in intellect. Uh, I'm probably too optimistic altogether. All my friends say this. I think there's a 50-50 chance humanity will make it through this current um, bottleneck where our technological power is so, um, so much greater than our ability to act consciously, politically, and emotionally. But humans are changing quickly. Even emotionally, our our capacity for violence for the average human has declined massively. Mm-hmm. Thinker's latest book shows. So there's, <coughs> there's a lot of reasons for hope, but things could go horribly wrong. It wouldn't take much for the Pakistan government to start a nuclear war or the Israelis to retaliate for a small, dirty bomb and take out most of the Arab and and the Iranian capital, the Arab capitals in Iran, or for the Korean crazy people who run that, that fat little guy who's replaced his fat Kim little Jong-un. father. Kim, yes, I have trouble keeping track. Kim Jong-un, Kim Il-sen, I, I remember. <laughs> the fact that these people have access to these horrific weapons. And then, of course, biological weapons are much more dangerous, actually. Much easier to make. The low, you know, the poor, poor man's nuke. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, this global weirding, the climate change, as well as the threat of a pandemic. Any species that overproduces like humans have is almost always hit with major pandemics to write the balance. And humans are ripe for extreme uh, amount of suffering, as, in fact, many of the smarter people in various governments know. And we've seen, actually, more and more money going to preparing for a potential pandemic. This is why we see health officials around the world always a quite upset or an avian flu, so-called, becomes, uh, you know, there's a recent breakout now happening in the Far East. 20 people have died, a very fatal form of avian flu. But now it's only infectious from the chickens to the humans. If it becomes infectious between humans, we could see hundreds of millions of people die in a matter of months. I think the coronavirus was, I was reading a couple of articles recently, was uh, very, there were some very dangerous developments with that recently. But, I, but the good, good news is the scientists are working hard and they think they can get inside the uh, cycle of making the vaccine so maybe it won't become a total disaster. It's a, we're in a giant race where humans' emotional and scientific and political capabilities keep up with our ability to mobilize technoscience to destroy ourselves and the planet. It's going to be very close. We live in interesting times. So let me ask you uh, what your views on transhumanism are in the following way by saying you said that there's 50-50 chance that humanity would make it through the next through this coming bottleneck i'd say there's 0% chance that humanity will make it 
maybe whatever <laughs> makes it on the other end would be, you know, our the, the next step of evolution. Well, I think very soon we will have a homo sapien cyborg or some other term, some new human will arise. But, you know, to define a new species, one of the things is uh, reproductive limitations. And I actually see most of the quote-unquote post-humans that will be developed soon will still be compatible biologically for breeding um, with humans. So whether there be a truly new species, I don't know. <coughs> Eventually, if we get through this bottleneck, there will be a proliferation of different types of humans. We already see this now when people go, am I a cyborg or not? When I first introduced this term to my students, my friends, that's the first thing they ask. But that's not the important question. It isn't whether you're a cyborg, since almost everyone is. And even if you're not, you live in cyborg society. But it's what kind of a cyborg you are. And what kind of a cyborg might you become? And who's deciding how you will be cyborg? Are you deciding yourself? And the great thing about the transhumanists is that the majority seem very political, either libertarian or, as James is, sort of socialist, James Hughes. And that awareness is unusual among people who are enamored with technology. But I think transhumanists recognize that decisions about how humans are going to be or how humans will be in the future are political decisions. I mean, the technological options have to be developed and so on, but humans have shown an ability to manipulate the physical world that is extraordinary. So many, many things will be possible. It's what we, we choose. So, so I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the transhumanist view, but on the other hand, I consider the singularity, in particular, the nerd rapture. I consider it just a religious idea. I have not found anyone to come forward with a coherent argument for why we should actually um, count on this coming sentience. And if indeed, um, like the inner web became sentient, why would it treat us well? It's, this is a second question, which I think people are way too um, naive about. Oh, yes, let's make the interweb conscious, and then it will help us download ourselves into computers or robots. Or Why would it bother? I mean, really, unless it has some sense of loyalty. But on the other hand, it's not going to become sentient anytime soon. Werner Vinge was right when he said human-machine systems were going to become very powerful and sophisticated. He was absolutely wrong when he thought that AI might somehow spontaneously develop out of uh, just the accumulation of a lot of processing. And people like Kurzweil and so on are just remarkably naive in their models of how human consciousness works and how when they say, oh, computers are now as smart as beetles and so on. Well, of course, all that talk was before they realized white matter was as important a part of cognition as the gray matter, which is only a recent neurological discovery. You have to rewrite all those calculations. And even then, it's not the hardware. As anyone who knows computers knows, hardware has been increasing in its efficacy um, since digital computers really started being developed. But the software, I don't know anyone who does code, you know, works with software who would say that there's been any kind of geometric increase in, in software. If it improves at all, software is only improving arithmetically, unlike the hardware. It's hard to notice because the hardware is improving um, geometrically, and so people can do as crappy programming as ever, and it's much better because you have so much more room to do stuff. But that doesn't mean the software has gotten any better. Maybe it's a little better. I'm not convinced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But why should anyone think we're on the verge of uh, the singularity happening? It just um, baffles me as much as turning water into wine, or um, <laughs> Muhammad riding his horse into heaven, or... Uh, 
any of these beautiful or ugly stories that the major religions tell, now the nerds have their own religion that's just as improbable. Well, I am definitely a nerd, uh, and I've interviewed about a hundred people on the topic so far, and uh, some very notable skeptics, uh, and some huge proponents like uh, Ray Kurzweil. Um, and, you know, I've, I've found that uh, during the course of those interviews, it's almost an equal split. Uh, it seems to me, and, and I have uh, talked to some uh, pretty well-known uh, neuroscientists like Randall Kuna, for example, who uh, said on my show that uh, mind uploading is not science fiction anymore. And I'm sure he's very well aware of the latest uh, development in neuroscience. Uh, and uh, I've had Ray Kurzweil, whom we know his position, but I've had mm-hmm. many other skeptics like Michael Shermer, uh, who is basically the skeptic from skeptic.com with, yes, uh, yes. with people such as John Horgan, for example, who wrote a book called The End of Science. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know. It's interesting for me to watch where people stand. For example, I interviewed, uh, David Ferrucci, the, the, the person behind, uh, Watson. And he himself said that he didn't see how we're going to get there. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, many people point that Watson is just one example, benchmark example towards the singularity, just like Alan Turing predicted, you know, we would defeat, uh, uh, machines would defeat humans in chess. Then, uh, that was called not a big deal because chess was not unique language was then we defeated human machines got def- uh, defeated humans in language, which is to say Watson beat the two best humans in Jeopardy. And yes, so, but that was just a very constrained. Still, a computer can't pass the Turing test. And actually, we're a bit past Turing's deadline. And Big but Blue... But we're getting not, closer. But we're but, getting closer. So every year, more and more of those so-called judges get to be tricked. Yes, and guess what programs are the ones that do the best? Those that use brute force programming. Not with sophisticated algorithms that mimic consciousness, but just by collecting enough um, data about how language is used so they can come closer to fooling it. And to go back to Big Blue, of course you know Big Blue cheated. Big Blue had access to um, data that uh, Kasparov was not allowed to. Big Blue was programmed every night by human programmers and three chess masters looking at Kasparov's game. If Kasparov was allowed to cheat like Big Blue did, I'm pretty convinced he would win. And still, chess is a very limited 64 squares. It is a toy problem in the real world. Now, AI might come about in a thousand years, but AI is so far away from happening. Uh, I've been a professor of computer science, and I've taught AI, and it just seems to me um, a more a matter of desire than actual rationality that leads people to think that soon we will have AIs that are in any way truly autonomous, conscious agents. Mm-hmm. There's a very interesting documentary about that game uh, uh, between Kasparov and Deep Blue. I think it was called uh, One Man Against the Machine, or I, I can't remember the title <laughs> at the moment, but it's very interesting. It goes precisely into the heart of all those issues that you mentioned, cheating, not sharing information with Kasparov that they promised they would share, mm-hmm. and, and all kinds of things like that. But time is advancing here, and we have to move on. So let me just ask you uh, to, to close that conversation on that issue here. 
what would be the benchmarks for you that in your mind would show you that we might be along a potential path towards a technological singularity? Would the passing the Turing test be one of them? No, no, because the Turing test is only five minutes. And they, you're right, they're getting closer to passing, but it's based on brute force programming, not on any new sophisticated algorithms. Well, it would be an extended uh, relationship with uh, between human consciousness and machine consciousness. But you see, like in Galita 2.0 or something, that was a, by a guy named Powers. He wrote a pretty good novel um, based on, uh, you know, it's, it's a science fiction novel. The machine becomes conscious. You see it in science fiction where um, this, even in Asimov's uh, series around the iRobot series, the, yeah. there's a point where you will know it when it happens. Like, you know you're in love. You can't really say, I'm in love, why you're in love. Oh, I like how she looks. I like what he says. But when it comes down to it, you just know. There will be a time when, and it's not enough for one person to know or a group of people. Everyone would just have to know and say, yes, this is true. Like, we all know now, most of us, that people of different colors are still all fully human. When, in fact, for much of human existence, that has not been clear to many people who thought, oh, I'm human, but those other people, they aren't quite human. You know, those Greeks, those uh, people of color, those that tribe down the, the way, you know, uh, the crow looking at the Sioux. Oh, they aren't really human. But now, much as the crows still hate the Sioux, I lived in Montana for a number of years. I got to learn a lot about how Native American tribes still keep their historical antagonisms. They aren't going to pretend they aren't human anymore. But, of course, most of the names of the tribes we know, like Cheyenne means the people. People call themselves the people, and by implication, nobody else was people. Well, at some point in the far future, if we make it through the current crisis, there might be sophisticated enough machines, so we would just recognize that they have um, consciousness, and they deserve uh, rights. And that would be fine with me. I expect humans make it um, in, keep going, post-humans, for a million years. We will run into other forms of life that have this. I personally believe evolution inevitably leads to consciousness because that is the best way to succeed in the problem of survival and reproduction is to manipulate your environment consciously. That opens up a lot more options for lasting a long time than the, the blind chance and necessity of natural selection. But wouldn't it be short too run, late? Wouldn't it be too late if we're taking this, if I may call it, post-factum approach to artificial intelligence? Post-factum, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, you said only after it's there we would know it's there. Just well, like... Right. Well, people will be making claims anyway because it'll be a giant commercial thing as we've seen with Watson and Big Blue and so on. So we can't take the claims of people. We will have to be convinced ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And I don't see it coming anytime soon. Now, of course, Ilya Prigogine's work on dissipating structures which I actually always expect singularity believers to bring up more, but they never do. But that would be the only dynamic we know of from science that could possibly argue that, yes, we will have this reorganization, a phase state transition, and we will have consciousness come out of this, you know, machinic systems. But then in that case, too, you have to see it, to know it. Um, as for the consciously building of these systems, what we've seen with Rodney Brooks, who broke with the old AI paradigm, which people like Minsky and stuff forced on us, which was a massive failure, of course. We have to recognize the history of AI has been just an incredible series of failures. So Rodney Brooks came up with the idea of evolving machine intelligence. But then he didn't want to wait 
because of course it's short lifespan. So he tried to jumpstart it. That couldn't happen. <coughs> so he's pretty much failed on the project and is much more interested in cyborg type mm-hmm. um, human. And that shows how smart he is that he realized that AI was not going to come anytime soon, even with a much better paradigm, which is fast, cheap, and out of control. Let us breed robots that are smart. And he bred robots that were smart as really, really stupid, um, stupid, stupid insects or bacteria. But, uh, anything smarter than that? Not yet. So do you think that's a sign of hubris, of, again, of man trying to come to terms with its own, his own mortality? Uh, and, and that's why we're, we're sort of going for, uh, the technological singularity and or transhumanism as promises of overcoming that. Well, I think, um, the belief in the singularity is the same, uh, basic causes as most religious beliefs. <coughs> Fear of death, desire to be immortal. Uh, human hubris, which this is one of the many reasons I love the Greek, because this is the real sin of humanity. To have too much pride, either in our little lives or writ large. Look at what we've done in the environment, all these modifications of the environment, not even knowing its implications. That's a related but somewhat separate issue, and that's something we always must watch for. We must, um, in the individual, as your last interviewee was saying, it's really collective decision-making is much better, but in the species as a whole, we cannot totally transcend Earth because we are part of Earth. We need nature. We cannot totally remake, remodel, destroy nature, at least not yet, because it is what sustains us. And hubris is uh, behind the mistaken belief some people have that we could just ignore nature. I totally support getting off the planet. I really like it that the transhumanists are part of this whole movement, and some people actually have real money to try to make this happen, because that's what life should do. Life should spread out. We have to spread our bets out. But in other ways, I think people have succumbed to uh, the fear of death or the desire for a long and resting life and have sort of not been really uh, skeptical enough in their thinking. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Chris, time is advancing here seriously, so I, I, I'm afraid we only have a few minutes here left of the interview. So let me ask you, I mentioned at the beginning in the introduction that you're currently working on a new book called Infoisms. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about, about it with us? What's the, yes, what I'm, what's the main argument, for example? The main argument is, is that there's many different ways to understand information. And I try to bring them all together and look at some major categories like limits, like emergence, like networks. Um, like the poetics, what we can understand by thinking deeply about information in terms of poetics and politics. And it's full of quotes from people that contradict each other and statements by myself that I contradict in the next bit. My dream is that when people read this, they will hate a third of it. A third of it will seem totally obvious, and a third of it will help them think better. And the thing is, every reader, it'll be different thirds. That's my aim. And so it's aphorisms in honor of Nietzsche and Wittgenstein and others who've used that form, but also because I have no claim for a complete coherent argument. There is no complete coherent theory of information. There's many interesting partial understandings of information. So it's meant to be a very provocative book full of many um, clever, interesting things that will annoy people and inspire people, I hope, and so on. Mm-hmm. And then my other main research project right now is uh, Angel Gordo Lopez of the Cybersomos Agus Research Group in España and Spain, um, which uh, looks at social movements and digital media 
and publishes the journal Tecnocultura, which I'd encourage your argument, your audience to check out. It's in Spanish and in, uh, in English usually. It's to look at how social media um, really fits with social movements, especially the interweb as a distributed system. When you look at Kevin Kelly's rules for complex systems, they match very closely with the anarchist Colin Ward's arguments about why anarchism uh, is a better model for political change because of spontaneous order and uh, thriving through complexity and uh, the effectiveness of distributed as opposed to hierarchical systems. And in fact, that's what we see around the world. Thanks to the collapse of Marxism, which just like the military is a hierarchical way of seeing things, especially Marxist-Leninism, I mean, Gramsci and uh, Rosa Luxemburg and the early Marx are not really necessarily hierarchical, but Marxism with its pretense to science is, just like the military. So we need to have a better way of understanding um, the fitting. In, in my field, we talk about affordances, how technologies, and that can include things like the interweb, they fit with certain things better than others. Well, the affordances between the interweb and uh, horizontalist activist organizing, whether it's virtual, like Anonymous or WikiLeaks, or whether it's embodied and, and mediated in part technologically, like I Don't Know More, started by four women on Facebook, or uh, Los Indignados, the 15th May movement of España, or Occupy, which wasn't really a movement, but a manifestation of a movement that's ongoing in North America and around the world that is horizontalist, decentralized. So we're trying to understand, for example, why the U.S. military, with the best IT in the world, has lost its last three wars. Because, as a hierarchy, it cannot mobilize distributed networks uh, to their fullest because they are hierarchical. And Bradley Manning is a perfect example. He took a lot of hierarchically collected information, and he made it available to the distributed network, that is, the press and WikiLeaks and so on, and became a major threat to U.S. military um operations, but by destabilizing, by um, subverting the hierarchical military form. The military cannot be a distributed network. The U.S. military loses its wars because it's trying to um, hammer a nail with a banana. It's just the wrong tool for what it wants to do. And in the old mode of the military, as you probably noticed in your studies of military history, when faced with limited war, guerrilla war, small war, dirty war, as many terms, what does the dominant power do to succeed? Well, genocide. Genocide works really well. But genocide cannot work in our world today because everyone would see it on the interweb, that's it on TV. And in fact, it would deconstruct the um, ability of the military to succeed. Because as Sun Tzu pointed out, still the best book ever on war, which is really says something about war theory, that the best book was written thousands of years ago. War is not about killing other people. You kill other people so you can impose your view of reality on them. Elaine Scarry wrote a great book, The Body in Pain, about torture and war. But what can you do if your ability to use violence to change people's mind is trumped by social media, by the incredible explosion of communicative potential that we are living through? So the U.S. can, sure, we can kill some Pakistanis with drones and so on, but then it's on the Internet, and the Pakistanis and the Americans and the French and the Sudanese, everyone can learn about it and think about it and communicate at a much faster rate. People's minds can be changed through social media than through violence. And in the long run, violence alone does not sustain any kind of system. The violence is used to create belief in the system. 
But if uh, information can outrun that, it becomes very ineffective, as we've seen in Vietnam and Afghanistan and Iraq. It's not just the U.S. that loses these wars. The second greatest military power in the history of the world, they lost the war in Afghanistan. That was the Soviets. And they couldn't even keep their empire together. It collapsed. Right? Their tanks were useless against the Velvet uh, Spring and the uh, civil society of the Hungarians and solidarity of the Poles. So that, that gives me optimism. That the, a lot of these new technologies... And in a way, the inner web is, a, it's, it is natural, of course, because everything humans do is natural, but it's taken on many of the aspects of an autonomous ecosystem. It cannot be dominated. As you pointed out, early on, it escaped from military control. And although many people try desperately to take it over, Microsoft, now Google and Facebook, they will fail. Because it's so vast. So many different people do so many different things and want so many different things from it. And the interconnections the ubiquity and the convergence that we see with IT, this means that it's become like almost part of the nervous system for the whole planet, or at least for all of humanity. And humanity is the consciousness for the planet. And the more we embrace that, uh, the more chance we have of negotiating the current difficult times and coming through to the other end so we can explore all these wonderful post-human possibilities. <laughs> I think... Uh We've covered an enormous amount of topics today, and uh, I would actually enjoy uh, re-listening to this interview and pondering uh, all over it for a long time, I think. But I think you also sold me entirely on your coming book. I think I'm definitely going to buy it. Okay. Because I like uh, such uh, sort of contradictory uh, bodies of work. I find them very stimulating. I'm uh, glad to hear that. And And... So let me ask you this, for those of our viewers and listeners who want to find out more about you and your work, what's the best place? Oh, they can go to my website, http, you know, My first book, Postmodern War, is free, thanks to Guilford Press. I have links to a novel I wrote in the 80s, a sort of uh, alchemist, uh, punky, anarchist novel. Um, I also have some columns on daily costs. Uh, about the Egyptian Revolution under the name Crystal Ray, but also several columns about Game of Thrones, which I'm very fond of, you know, Lord of the Rings for Adults, and uh, looking at uh, debt, for example, David Graeber's work, seen through the eyes of the Lannisters, mm -hmm. or the human dilemma seen through the slogan, Winter is Coming. Um, so look on my website especially, and it'll lead to many papers and, and, and these other works too. Fantastic. So... After talking about such a diversity of topics today, what is it that you would like that our viewers and listeners perhaps take away from this interview with you today? One thing more than anything else. That we need good citizenship, strong citizenship like Socrates had, where he went and risked his life to fight for Athens. And then when he was ordered by a dictator to execute someone, he refused and risked his life again. And then in the very end, when uh, their bad technology, their democracy was not most perfected, when a random group of 500 citizens voted to put him to death, that he honored his democracy by accepting that death. We can't be just people who vote, people who, uh, whether it's for American Idol or for prime minister or for president, it's not enough. We must be really engaged citizens like our hero Socrates and risk all risk our lives to make the world better for our children and our friends. Chris Cable is great. Thank you so much for being with us today.
Thank you. Thank you.